Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the core concept that should be behind strengthening the acquisition workforce. Acquisition is about supporting the mission, and you've got to understand and be connected to the mission. In too many cases, I think we may be distanced from the mission. A delay everyone saw coming may not help some agencies much. If agencies are just now looking at this and saying, oh man, I got another year, but I got to start now, they're way behind. Fortunately, I don't think many are in that position. And the problem behind the problem for the next generation of technology. We have to figure out the technologies that are on the cusp of being deployable. You know, AI is maybe one of them, but it's not yet. I mean, AI is, is you have to do things before you get the data aligned to then have to allow AI to work. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The General Services Administration is delaying the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Services contract for agencies. Dave Nitschpeer is writing about it at fedscoop.com. What is the story it's hitting today? People are not surprised, but there is a lot here, isn't there, Dave? Welcome. Yeah, no surprise here, but uh, I do think it's a a bit of a relief, uh, particularly for the nine vendors that uh, are helping agencies transition to EIS. Uh, This was something that they called for and told FedScoop about in October uh, as wanting an extension on these deadlines. And now that they're here, I think uh, agencies are definitely pleased and so are the vendors that have to help them. You're writing that uh, the contracts will now expire a year later than anticipated, May 31st, 2024. Uh, according to vendors that you've talked to that are on that vehicle. The, I, I think the nail in the coffin of the, the, the deadline of, uh, that we had before was the Vitara grades a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? When the 90% completion grades, everybody flunked. Yeah, uh, 15 uh, agencies received Fs. And uh, I think that was a big wake-up call. Um, but uh, I have heard from from vendors like Lumen that they don't necessarily think that it was the grades themselves that pushed EIS or GSA's hand in extensions. Uh, they actually say uh, this was kind of the writing on the wall for a while, mostly because of supply chain issues that uh, that they're experiencing um, due to the pandemic. This is not new, and you write about that in your story. It's a top story on FedScoop.com uh, at this hour. Uh, extending the deadline in 2019, the expiration date at that time was supposed to be May 2020. The same thing happened with the networks contract that we're transitioning off of now. And so I guess the question that we'll talk about actually later on this program, but also that we'll be talking about in this community in the weeks and months to come is number one, how do we prevent another extension, another delay? And how do we prevent this from happening to whatever follows on to EIS? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this has sort of become a tale as old as time uh, for GSA with these contracts uh, and extensions. Uh, I think the thing that's unique about this particular extension is the fact that uh, the pandemic really threw a wrench in vendors works. Uh, it's taking nine months now for for vendors to get microchips nine months longer uh, than previously. Uh, And so uh, this is going to be an issue that's not getting better. Uh, Supply chain issues are actually getting worse right now uh, for these vendors. So I do think uh, another extension could be on the horizon. Nobody's saying that yet. But uh, but uh, for now, they're just happy to get a year extension uh, and hopefully supply chain issues ease up 
uh, over the coming months. And there's no other variants of COVID out there that really affects their workforces. The cynic in me says nobody's talking about another extension now because we're just learning about this one today. But nobody was talking about another extension when the last one happened, Dave. So, you know, yeah. these things pile onto each other. Dave Nitschapir, great story on FedScoop.com. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You can read Dave's story and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the best bosses in federal IT. We're looking to honor the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. You can file your nomination now. The list of finalists will come out March 28th, and you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department will go back to basics to shore up its acquisition workforce. That's the name of its new program to update acquisition certification. Stan Soloway's president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform. Stan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. As we look at what the department wants to do, they're going to do it in conjunction, of course, with Defense Acquisition University. What's your takeaway from this back to basics program? Welcome. Yeah, good to see you, Francis, as always. Uh, so I'm going to be really interested to see how it plays out. Um, I'd like to, and I'm going to be a little bit of the cynic, and maybe at my age, I get to do that more than I used to. It's not um, shocking to anyone that knows you. It's not, not shocking. I want to know what back to basics means uh, and back to basics on certifications. And I've been in a lot of conversations in the building and with DAU and other organizations around these issues, not particularly around this initiative necessarily. Um around the need to sort of rethink how we develop and train the whole acquisition workforce. And so if this is an initiative that enables the department and other agencies of government to follow suit, to rethink what, not just skill sets, I mean, technical skill sets, but how we approach professional development in the acquisition community, great. If we are reinventing or slightly modernizing what we've been doing for the last number of decades, I actually have some concerns about it. I, th I think it's, and I'll just use one example. I, not too many years ago, a senior official at DOD started a process where you came into the acquisition workforce, and the first thing you did was you went to what they called FAR boot camp. Um, you know, my view was as soon as you go into FAR boot camp, you are inculcated into a system that, and not that the FAR doesn't allow you to do things creatively, but it gets you thinking in a rigid sense as opposed to starting with a, how do I solve a problem? And the FAR becomes a resource. So, that's where I am. Is what does this actually mean when we say back to basics? So the Defense Acquisition University's website with FAQs about back to basics answers the question, what is it? In this way, to support the national defense strategy, it's imperative the Defense Department pivot from the past broad workforce focus and get back to basics by streamlining our functional area framework and prioritizing limited training resources for the defense acquisition workforce who develop, acquire, and sustain operational capability. What does that definition of what it is say to you? And do you hear anything there that soothes your concerns, Stan? So, so let me start from the front end and, and it, it'd be very clear that I think Jim Wolsey and the team at DAU are actually making progress. I don't want to sound like I'm knocking them. I will say, however, that that sentence is slightly different words is a sentence that we wrote in 1995 and in 2000 and 2008. It's, it's, it, it is a, it, the marketplace through which, in which the Department of Defense operates is unbelievably dynamic and is even more dynamic today than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. By definition, therefore, what DAU, DAU is saying is absolutely correct. It has got to be an agile, dynamic process. Where I think 
I would like to see them, and it's not just DAU because they provide the training. They don't necessarily direct what's to be trained to. Um, more focus on qualified than certified is, is, is a term that we hear more and more. What's, how, how, how broad is your experience base? Um, and, and even perhaps more importantly, um, thinking about acquisition from an organizational perspective. What are the attributes an organization that does buying really has to have? Because it's not just contracting, right? It's program management systems, engineering, it's logistics. It's, it's a whole array of capabilities. How does that integrate with the legal frameworks and the budget frameworks, all of which have their, their problems? So if we're really going to adapt to a world in which you fall further behind faster on a technology base, you need an acquisition system that can move faster forward. And, 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 and I worry that we haven't gotten there. And as you know, we did a study, I was involved in the co-authored a study last summer on other transactions authority, which is an innovative sort of non-FAR based way to approach. One of the key takeaways, and it's really important, is what we found when we reviewed and analyzed a bunch of these OTs is it wasn't the Wild West. People were being very responsible. They actually looked a lot like a commercial contract that you could do under the FAR. What that says to me is we have a core of people who have a basic sense of responsibility and, and a basic sense of what it means to have the public trust, to spend the public dollar. So let's turn them loose a little bit more rather than inculcate them in a traditional model, which is more about oversight and risk aversion than it is about creativity and really spreading your wings. Well, you know me, I like it everything to be simple. And so I would simplify what you just espoused there as being uh, these people want to do the right thing. And if they're cool. predisposed to do the right thing, then allowing them more creativity in doing the right thing should lead to better results than we're getting now. Is that a fair progression of Absolutely. thought? Do you think? I, think that's, I think that's really well put. And I think part of the problem is they get into the system and they're doing the right thing within the context of a system they know or they're told this is the box. Right. And you hear all the time from frontline folks that, that sometimes they feel constrained. I will also add, that if you add, ask contracting folks, they'll tell you the program folks have taken over the world and they're just executing what they're told. If you talk to the program folks, I know you hear this in the IT space all the time. Yes. Those damn contracting people, they're just, they're, they're, it's not an either or, it's both. How do you think organizationally? What is the outcome we're trying to achieve? I know that sounds flowery and sort of esoteric, but it provides a different kind of framework for the development rather than isolation. It's really holistic. The next frequently asked question uh, on DAU's website is, what does the Back to Basics initiative change? And this is the answer. The Back to Basics initiative streamlines career fields into functional areas, compresses a three-level certification model into a one- or two-tier framework, and moves away from a front-loaded training model to a lifelong learning paradigm. That all sounds really good, and it sounds like that's a desirable thing like we don't need more uh, to your point about uh capabilities rather than certifications you had a, a cute little saying there I, that uh, escapes me now but it sounds like they're getting to the right idea well i think and i think look i think consolidating the certifications and reducing the, the focus on it is important i think the comment about lifelong learning we've been ha we've had that i actually wrote the policy in 1997 or 98 that said you're going to do 80 hours every two years of continuous learning. So this is a lifelong learning process. Um, I think that the, that the way that this could be really successful is if the workforce itself, if the frontline folks themselves began to take a little bit more ownership of their career development, because there are opportunities to learn different things. And so how they approach their own lifelong learning and are encouraged to do it is really important. You hear a lot of talk, and, and I agree with it, 
about mentors and in and, and, and all fields, you need mentors. But you also want to be careful who the mentors are. Because if the mentors are coming out of an old way of thinking, are they mentoring you back into it? So it's it's a, not an uncomplicated question. It's far from a new question. Um, I'm I'm really impressed with some of what DAU is talking about trying to do. We don't have a lot of time to mess around with it, though. I note for the listener, as you were talking about uh, writing that policy in 1997 or 98, you were indeed shaking your fist at the sun. Uh, as, as one would expect someone who did something 25 years ago and the kids are just now catching up to it to do today. No, no, they've been doing it. I, I was just saying lifelong learning has been a theme oh. for a number of years. Okay, okay. And I give Jack Gansler, the former undersecretary, he was the one who really started pushing this really, really hard. Um, the only wrinkle here, the only thing that jumped out at me as potentially uh, a stumbling block is the first statement in the definition of what the Back to Basics initiative is, Stan, is to support the national defense strategy. Well, right now, we don't have a current national defense strategy. We have the one that existed from 2018, and we're supposed to have a new one. Is this something, and I'm asking this as a total amateur, not, I don't, I don't know, is this something that's flexible that can be molded to a new national defense strategy if it's different either uh, in a small way or significantly from the current one? Well, two thoughts. One of us, if it's really a dynamic development model, then yes, it okay. is constantly adapting to, to changing circumstances. But the second thing that I'll say, and maybe even more important is to remember, acquisition is about supporting the mission. And you've got to understand and be connected to the mission. In too many cases, I think we may be distanced from the mission. Um, and so I think that both of those things are important, but that absolutely has to be the foundation. Great to talk to you as always, my friend. Interesting insight, uh, as I always get from you, and I'm glad to have you on the program today. Great to see you, Francis. Thanks so much. You can read more about the Back to Basics program at DAU in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Thursday's show, Innovation for the Defense Department. The leader of the Defense Innovation Unit, Mike Brown, will be here. That Daily Scoop podcast coming Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. As you heard earlier in the program, the General Services Administration's pushing back the deadlines for transitions to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. It's giving agencies another year to make the switch. Bob Osborne's Chief Technology Officer for Global Governments for ServiceNow. He's former Chief Information Officer at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on. When I first read this, I thought a year is a lot of extra time. And then I thought about it. A year's not really a lot of extra time, is it? Welcome, Bob. Francis, thanks so much for having me. And, and this is a, a subject that I think is really germane to the times that we're in. And no, it's not a lot of time at all. And when you talk about the ability to move uh, major capabilities between technologies for government agencies, really the planning process and making sure that the architecture is right and having the ability to, to move uh, workload and then test that is only the, the tail end of it. The, the procurement process going into that, making sure that we have the acquisition law uh, requirements, uh, I's dotted and T's crossed, so that we're doing this cleanly and competitively really hamstrings uh, government agencies. And I think that this is just an indicator, Francis, of challenges that all of the agencies are dealing with. When we have the type of fiscal environment, which really handcuffs agencies and being able to plan and execute, for modernization strategies that they've been talking about for years. You know, when you have continuous CRs, it really 
it really makes it difficult for agencies to keep up their strategy and do what they really want to do to create better services for citizens. That's the problem here, isn't it? The fact that agencies that are trying to make these transitions in many cases only have appropriated dollars for six. I mean, we're going to have less than six months of appropriated dollars this year to be able to start something new, like a transition to a new contract, right? Exactly right. So if everything isn't already uh, preloaded, and in many cases, that's really difficult, if not impossible to do, then you have to delay. And I think that that was a recognition of GSA that, that there is an environment that's been created for the federal agencies that just make it impossible. And, and you know, reference is made to the FATARA scorecard all the time. And, and is it really valuable to agencies and is it worthwhile doing? And I think this is an example where it absolutely demonstrates the ability to manage and, and understand the challenges put before government technology executives as they try to execute their transformation strategies. It's ironic to me that a, a metric that Congress uses to grade agencies is uh, the, the reason that the agencies don't do well in that metric is because of Congress's actions. It doesn't sound like it's really a fair grade or a fair category even. Yeah, in many, many cases, it seems like a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. You know, the chicken and egg question always comes up, you know, well, you need to do a transformation. Well, we need the funding and resources and a, and a, and a predictable programmatic structure that we can actually move forward with. And then the Congress actually ends up handcuffing either by design or, or uh, as a byproduct of things that are going on politically, right? So in the position of a chief information officer trying to work through this, if you're starting from scratch today and you still have an extra year now that you weren't expecting, it still means you need to get off your duff and go do it now, right? Yeah, if, if you haven't considered uh, what your strategy is for a move like this and you're starting from scratch a year is almost undoable because the market analysis, the, the ability to assess which technologies are going to work, how your, how your infrastructure needs to be prepared for a shift in technologies like this, all of those things take time. And, and then actually going through the process of funding the uh, technology experts that are going to conduct that move on your behalf is really part of the challenge. So yeah, if, if agencies are just now looking at this and saying, oh man, I got another year, but I got to start now, they're way behind. Fortunately, I don't think many are in that position. How do you triage that and move forward? Uh, how do you push the gas pedal if you've just been kind of driving in the right lane this the last couple of years? Great question, as always, Francis, because, you know, um, CIOs and technology executives in the government are faced with emergent situations that they have to deal with. And while we're tiring of, of uh, using the COVID pandemic as an excuse or an example of why things are the way they are, it really is. So when agencies have been focusing on how do they manage a dispersed hybrid workforce in the COVID environment where people weren't able to come into the workplace and focusing their resources and technologies in that direction. And now GSA says, oh, hey, by the way, uh, yeah, we're going to extend this year because everybody's late, but here's kind of why it's late. So triaging which programs are not only funded, but you're going to focus on with the resources that you have available in the PRESBUD or the CR or whatever you might be dealing with is really one of the biggest management challenges for CIOs uh, during this uh, decade as we go forward. So uh, I think that they're, they're well prepared. They understand that challenge very well, but they're all in different positions as far as maturity and executing on their transformation strategies 
to be able to actually respond to that in, in an effective fashion. Well, they've all got different transformation strategies, too, because every CIO that I've talked to over the last couple of weeks is doing something different, and rightfully so. I am i don't mean that in an accusatory way, but they're doing something different as far as what they have to think about about back to the office and what they have to think about about what the workplace looks like for the next two to five years, and then preparing an infrastructure architecture to support that. And each of that varies by mission, right, uh, Francis? So depending on uh, the mission of your agency and its ability to embrace a hybrid workforce and and, uh, a dispersed uh, capability of um, digital interaction with citizens so that people could do more business with their government agency online versus the missions that require people actually come into buildings and interact and do things are going to drive that strategy uh, fairly significantly differently. So significantly differently. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> Double adverb there. That I like that. Yeah. That's that's great style, Bob. All right. Um, regarding the the transfer the transition from networks to EIS, um, it, could this be it? I mean, given what you're talking about, the way that it sounds, I wouldn't be surprised if we're sitting here a year from now and you and I are talking about another extension, and then we get into networks territory, Bob where networks took, I think it was almost three years to transition off uh, two networks, and it, it cost a lot of money. It cost the government a lot of money. It cost agencies a lot of money, and, and the, the whole thing just didn't work out the way that people wanted it to work out. Exactly right, and, and you know, it's really like having uh, two trains running side by side, and you're going to go from one train to the other, and you have to maintain both trains during that transition. So an extension like this, while it seems to be a relief, it actually increases the cost significantly because you're extending the life of the, of the legacy technology while you're having to transition to the new technology. But when you go from networks to EIS, the, the, the premise and the reason for doing so is still extremely valid and, and you know, is an imperative to agencies to move. And I don't think there's any uh, real pushback against that. I think it's strictly budgetary and programmatically focused on the ability to execute uh, based upon what the agency is a resource to do right now. Seems like now is the right time also to think about the end of EIS. EIS will end someday and we'll have this all over again. And I remember very plainly asking people when networks ended in the early 20 teens, what do we do so this doesn't happen again? Bob, I'll ask you, what do we do when EIS ends so this doesn't happen again? What helps the CIO to not be in this position at the end of EIS whenever the next thing comes along? Well, you know, Francis, you and I can remember remember back to the Y2K times yes. and the preparations for the impending uh, destruction of the communications networks uh, based upon time-based limitations in the technology of the time. And at that point, we recognize, hey, we need to be ready for the next thing. We, we always have to have the technology we're working in, what technology we're going to move to, and then what is beyond that? What's in the future and how can we get ahead of that? And that's where the national laboratories who support government agencies and the research facilities in our universities around uh, the country and actually the world come in to help us get insight into how we can look at future technologies and have a, a strategy going forward, which is why most government agencies look five years out in their strategic plan, even though we're only funded annually. 
Uh, and that's why the program operating memorandum or the POM reflects a five-year strategy is so that you can look into the future as much as possible to be ready for what is the thing after the thing you're moving to. So you're exactly right, whether it was Y2K or you move into the uh, attacks of 9-11 and, and the communication problems we had on that day and all the things that we f find ourselves responding to and saying we have to be prepared so that this doesn't happen again. And unfortunately, we don't have the crystal ball to understand what that next thing is going to be. So we have to reach our tentacles out into those research and education facilities that are looking into the future to help us be prepared as a government to move programmatically through those steps to be ready to deliver our services, regardless of the challenges that our CIOs and technology executives face. It just strikes me as as eminently doable because we know EIS will end as we knew networks was going to end and we know what people have to do. And to be clear, there's GSA is not the problem here, I don't think. GSA started telling people three years ago, the end is in sight. You need to get moving. And people either chose not to or were not able to for whatever reason uh, to make that transition. So um, beyond beating the drum, I'm not sure what they do. And I wonder if there's something someone else should do somewhere to encourage, cajole, force people to do better next time when EIS ends. Every senior executive in technology and government that I've talked to, they're trying to drive their transformation. They're trying to do the right thing. So I don't think that it's, it's lack of effort or desire to move forward. I think it's really just this convergence of um, situational uh, problems that they're facing that, that kind of converge to create an environment that makes it extremely difficult to do so. And unfortunately, it normally takes some sort of an emergent uh, problem that arises that drives us to either see additional funding come from the Congress in an emergency uh, funding application like we did during COVID or, or something like that that helps the agencies get the resources required to move over that hump of not desire to change, but the, the programmatic realities of the resources that are available. Bob Osborne, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Francis, thanks so much and have a great day. You can read more about the EIS delay in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A programming note, you'll get a new Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow afternoon and Friday afternoon. We're off for the Washington's birthday holiday Monday and back with a new Daily Scoop podcast on Tuesday. The Defense Information Systems Agency is moving full speed ahead with its Thunderdome program. That program is essentially a replacement or a next generation for the joint regional security stacks. Rob Carey is president of Cloudera Government Solutions. He's former chief information officer at the Navy and former principal deputy CIO of the Defense Department. Rob, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. So my takeaway for Thunderdome is that one of the reasons JRSS didn't happen is because it essentially became overcome by events. It took so long to deploy that better technology became available for the department to pursue. Whether it's Thunderdome or whether it's some other kind of technology the department is trying to move on from or iterate, how does one get out of that slowness cycle and move to speed to get this stuff deployed so that it can actually do something? Welcome, Rob. Yeah, thank you, Francis. Uh, it's a great question, and, and it's a frustrating question because 
the scale in which the DOD network uh, is deployed, the scale in which the network is deployed is uh, phenomenal, right? It, it is something of a scale that no one understands unless you've been in that five-sided building. And so when you're now trying to deploy things at that scale, speed to deployment is crucial, right? You're going to bring a capability about how do you acquire it in time to then deploy it uh, quickly while keeping that network running. So it becomes a challenge of the acquisition process to enable the acquisition to occur uh, in, in lightning speed compared to you know the acquisition process that we have today. So while I believe JRSS was well intended, as you described, you know as we move through it, uh, when I was in government, um, better technologies kept coming out. And so the, 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 the temptation is to put them in the system. By the time you got your JRSS stack deployed, it was old, right? So the question really is, how do we deploy at scale? And then how do we enable a learning network to defend in a different manner, right? I, I do believe that the, the structured defenses are, are wonderful, except for when you have to replace them uh, reasonably often or update them, you have to be able to do that. And, and so right now, we're still scratching at uh, the impact that AI will have or ML will have on cyber. Um, it is a it is a uh, is thought to be uh, the godsend or the next big thing, but it takes a lot of work to get to the place where uh, those technologies can be brought to bear and they can be consistently upgraded as learning devices themselves. There was a period of time where there's a lot of emphasis on enterprise architecture, not just in the Defense Department, but all across the federal government and, and the broader technology sphere. That term kind of disappeared for a while. I've started to hear it again more recently, and it sounds like what you're saying is that the enterprise architecture of a network, whether it's Defense Departments or somebody else, is a really critical element of it being kind of a living thing that can continue to upgrade uh, it, that you can do that in pieces rather than having to build a thing and then it's old and you have to throw it out and start over as it is it appears at least from the outside is happening with JRSS. That's correct. In my mind, because uh, you're right, it's enterprise architecture has been on again, off again, on again, off again. And now you, you start to hear data architecture. You start to hear the term strategic plan uh, being brought to bear to other elements of the network secure or the network stack, if you will. And so th this is really about thinking about mission, what systems are carrying, uh, what data, where, uh, you know, because ultimately they're sitting on a server somewhere, they may be in a cloud, where are the users, how are they accessing them? So thinking about architecture today is a little bit more uh, uh, complicated than it was certainly when I was a CIO. But at the same time, you have to have the path to the future laid out. You have to, to have the off-ramp into the new technologies. And I think that's what most of the CIOs, I know John Sherman and others are, are clearly thinking about those kinds of things. But, but now you have to start with what you have, right? You have JRSS. So now you're going to try to migrate to Thunderdome or something else and in reality, that's the hard part. How do I do that within the acquisition process uh, quickly, right? Yeah, well, okay. So you asked the question, I'll ask it back to you. How do you do that within the acquisition process the department has quickly? If there's anything it's known for, it's being not quick. <laughs> that's, a, that's a technical term, right? Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, it's very true, uh, Francis. Um, I, it's like cyber as a whole. If you don't do something different, you cannot expect 
different answers, right? And so in reality, you know, things like AI and ML are the new potential opportunities for cyber defense, right? To enable the operators and the people in the SOC to now expand their talents, only worry about certain things, let the machines do some things. But, but, but in acquisition, we continue to do the same things. So, so in reality, unless you think of a special exemption for cybersecurity, must move the technology out within one year, what are, you know, figure out the parameters that, that, that allow it to move forward, you're stuck in the same old rut. Uh, and and I, I, I do believe I've been around now 30 plus years. I have not seen a material change in the acquisition process that accelerated much of anything when it's at scale like this. All right. Um, you said something a moment ago that I think is really interesting, and that is thinking about what uh, the architecture, what your structure should look like in the future. How far in the future, though, is reasonable to think, given the at rapid advances in technology? There's technology available today that when uh, people first started to think about JRSS didn't even exist. Uh, the cyber threat evolves on an ongoing basis. How far ahead is too far ahead to think this is where we'll be in X number of years to kind of maybe that would help pull the, the scope, the scale that you talked about earlier back a little bit and make it a little more manageable? Well, so so I think, you know, you're clearly staring out three years, five years, but you're clearly you'd love to stare out 10 years, but you can't. Right. Because because as, as you said, the, the technology cycle uh, just moves so much faster than that. And then sometimes it moves in a direction heretofore not thought of. So so you would never take that that off ramp. So I think that you still have to, you know, drive yourself to look out enough, but you have to then be prepared. Right. Some agility to move in a slightly different direction when technology proves itself to warrant that. At that, at that time. Then if you're at something like the scale of Department of Defense or maybe Department of Homeland Security, you know, you have to decide, how do I roll this out quickly? Whatever I just came up with, how do I get it out there? And that's the, or if I'm at DHS CISA, right? How do I roll this out, get a policy in place with speed? I'm not sure that anybody knew on June 28th, 2007, what was about to happen the next day, what the implications were. But June 29th of 2007 was the day the iPhone came out. And it strikes me that any enterprise architecture planning that any organization did before that went out the window when the uptake of that device started to have an impact on the way that people did information technology all across every enterprise. And that's why I'm thinking... The, about the possibility that we can get ahead of ourselves, that, that people can think too hard, maybe, um, can think too much about what the next thing should be. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. There have been some seminal events in the last 10, 15 years that we really, we really took a hard left or a hard right. Um, we were not on that plan. And then the stickiness with that technology uh, you know, remember cloud computing came out in 2009-ish under Vivek Kundra, and who to thunk, because uh, it was all cloud first, but it was a very slow uh, process to get it adopted and then figure out, hey, I've got to do different security levels there. Now we have FedRAMP. Um, and now we're, you know, we are talking about the things that need to be protected, the data, the applications. It is no longer the shell of the network architecture, but the edge devices, right? which were not in anybody's purview when the iPhone came out, mm -hmm. when we had Blackberries, what have you, you know, so now 
the edge devices are in fact uh, very much part of the network infrastructure and can be monitored, right? That drove a whole cottage industry about how do I manage those mobile devices? So I think that you have to have sufficient predictive capability of where the network's going, consistent with what your mission is, what you do for an agency, and then, and then move there knowing that something will likely change within the next three to five years that will cause you to make a left or a right. All right, final thought, that speed to deployment that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Rob, what are potentially the biggest impediments to that other than the acquisition challenges that you outlined already? Well, I think uh, I think that's really it, is the acquisition process. Now, I, I, I love the acquisition process is very, very necessary, right? To have that structure, to be able to look back and and map your course and understand where you are, why you are, how you spent your money, those kinds of things. That's very, very important. But at the same time, to be able to move with agility when you see something that works and put it out there, that's the hard part, to deploy something at a a scale, a global scale or nearly global scale. um, That gets really hard. And, And I think that we have to figure out the technologies that are on the cusp of being deployable, you know, AI is maybe one of them, but it's not yet. I mean, AI is, is you have to do things before you get the data aligned to then have, to allow AI to work, right? So it does work uh, very, very well, but there's a lot of work that has to go into uh, getting it to work. So doing all those things and making that part of your future is a level of detail of network management that we haven't done in the past. And then we map the acquisition process onto it, which is inherently uh, rigorous and structured. And now we take something that is quick and we slow it down. Rob Carey, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about Thunderdome and the end of the JRSS in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Mike Brown, the leader of the Defense Innovation Unit, is here tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 